Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. Uh, it's the 12th of October. It is the, uh, I don't know, day of Amy Coney Barrett's first hearing in the Senate. Did you, did you, did either of you watch this? I'm with Tammy and Andy as always. Did either of you watch any of this? <laughs> yes. I, I did not find myself watching any of it. I tried to. I probably caught like 20 minutes this morning. It was quite difficult to watch. How, how was it? Like, was it, is it the, was it the same as Kavanaugh? Was it a bunch of senators yelling at each other and somebody sitting there <laughs> crying? <laughs> <laughs> I wish it were that. That would have been better. <laughs> Lindsey Graham giving like an impassioned speech. Right. I know. Yeah. I felt like this one was, I mean, the part I caught, I was sort of half listening, but honestly, it was mostly just Republicans grandstanding about how amazing our system is and how this is a tribute to how well our system functions that we're here right now with her. <laughs> Do you remember that during the Kavanaugh hearings, Lindsey Graham's big speech, yeah. um, like he had a couple of them. One of them was like acoustic, soft Lindsey Graham, and the other one was screaming <laughs> Lindsey Graham. And the acoustic, the acoustics, yeah, unplugged. <laughs> Lindsey Graham unplugged was basically saying he's like he's like elections matter, you know. And then he talked about how he oh ran God. for president, and he only got one percent of the vote, and how he hated Trump, but you know, elections do matter. That's basically where we are, right? Like, I don't think that oh anything God. acoustic Lin- Lindsey or Lindsey Graham unplugs that is particularly wrong. And you know, I did. Did you have any hope that that Amy Coney Barrett, who was not going to be, was not going to just get rammed through here? You know, do you remember the few days where everyone was like, "We found all this audio of Lindsey Graham saying that he wouldn't do this," and it's like, what? he's like, "Oh no, checkmate!" You yeah. know, <laughs> Mitch McConnell said, "What? No, Mitch McConnell would never." do anything like slightly hypocritical yeah so we have sort of like i don't know the reason why i bring it up is because it feels like we're in this day where um there's so much discussion around the court right and there's so much talk about procedure and in the end isn't the obvious thing that like whatever political party is in charge is just going to ram through as many judges not just in the supreme court but in all federal positions as possible and that's probably what they should do yeah I I, I follow the Kavanaugh thing really closely, and I'm not a normally a SCOTUS person. I like I don't think I could even name all the justices right now, <laughs> but I follow that really closely. And I don't know what happened to us where like it was like the number one issue that you know I think I don't know if where you all were doing, but like I watched the entire uh, Christine Blasey Ford testimony. I like watched you know <laughs> wow. the different channels. Like I was like trying to make sure I understood the situation fully, and then obviously it didn't it didn't change anything. And I think. Years later, I still feel burnt out from that. And it's like, we don't even have like a smoking gun for any scandal with, with uh, Amy Coney Barrett, right? It's just, people don't like her, but like, that's, that's just yeah. typical politics. That's not like something scandalous that could, you know, on an ethical, on some ethical grounds, prevent her from, from being approved. Yeah. So. The only thing they bring up is like this affiliation with that religious group, right? Mm-hmm. Which yeah. seems so thin to me. It's like, uh, you know, like you, people should have the ability to join religious groups and still practice the law, right? Like it doesn't seem, it's like, remember when they tried to say Tulsi Gabbard was part of some sort of like crazed Hindu cult and it felt super racist that they were saying that and her connections to it were pretty specious. I'm not a Tulsi Gabbard supporter, but you know, <laughs> I did feel like, you know, if they dug through me and Tammy's 
history that they would find some relative who was like a Mooney or some shit, you know, and they would use it against us in that way. Or they'd be like, they're part of like, you know, like Tammy's cousin and soul is part of like the Shinchunji group, you know, who like right. was spreading coronavirus everywhere. Like that's a sort of attack. That's where we're at with the attack. It's not like, it's not like Christine Blasey Ford right. or Brett Kavanaugh. Um, all right. Well, I wanted to talk about this. And um, again, this is because I was listening to this podcast on a drive recently and it was the dig who's hosted by a friend of our podcast, Daniel Denver. And you know, it's part of Jacobin radio or whatever. It's not like Jacobin radio hours. That's not what it's called. Right? It's a ja- Jacobin media network, something like that. But he had on, he had on these three guests who's Aziz Rana, Amna Akbar, who I believe is one of Tammy's friends and Marbury Staley Butts. They had this really interesting conversation I want to talk about in terms of court packing and implications for people who are on the left. And, you know, before we start, I want to just say a few things about court packing, because these are things I didn't know. I imagine some of our listeners don't know as well. First is like this question of how if it's possible to do and it is possible to do. It turns out you don't need a constitutional amendment to expand or subtract the size of the court. Actually, like in the early days of the Republic, which I've done in huge areas. I hate when people say that stuff, you know, <laughs> they, like, like the body, body politic is another one. Or like, why don't you just, the, just say like the fucking country. But um, <laughs> the, since the early days of the country, they used to expand and contract it quite a bit. But since 1869, nobody has done this. It's been nine justices since 1869. Now, the part that you need a constitutional amendment for is term limits, right? But nobody's seriously really talking about term limits. And to that, you would need to get like a 60... Six percent, I think, majority in, in the Senate, which is impossible. So I think that <laughs> one is like not on the table. And um, in 1937, that was the last time that anybody tried to do court packing. Actually, that's when the term came about. It was FDR, and he was trying to get more justices so that they would approve his New Deal legislation, right? That it, that they would ratify it um, and uphold it. But it didn't really go through, and really, what. Some of the scholars are saying that FDR wasn't to- totally serious about expanding the court. He was just using it as sort of a political threat to get the justices to do what he wanted. Um, and the last thing I wanted to say about court packing before we start this conversation is that it's actually quite unpopular. Um, before, like right when RBG died, they did a poll and it, was, it turned out that only 19% of GOP and 30% of Democrats supported expanding the court. And that was surprising to me. I thought that you know, most mm. people wouldn't care, but people, <laughs> people seem to have a real like emotional attachment to the Supreme Court, which is what this dig episode talked about. That's what I think we should talk about at the beginning of the show here. Yeah. So, um, I don't know, Tammy, you went to law school, you were a practicing lawyer for a while. Like, you know, like, what, what like how, how is the Supreme Court taught in law schools, especially at like sort of elite law schools, which not to class shame or to <laughs> education shame, but I think we can say like, you know, you went to an elite law school like how how is the how is the law how is the supreme court treated there yeah so i took constitutional i think my second year and the professor who taught it had clerked at the supreme court which at most elite law schools all of the professors have right and um you learn it like it's god right i mean i think in that dig episode you know dan puts it very well where he calls it court veneration and I think that yeah. is very true in law schools. Like you, you know that certain cases were wrong, obviously, right? Like you learn about Dred Scott, you learn about Korematsu. But always there's this kind of like, 
I don't know. It's like church. Like you, there's a story about redemption and like the stability of this institution and guaranteeing our rights. And also, I think because so much happened in, you know, the 60s and the way that we learned about Brown v. Board and all this stuff, like the mythology around the court being a friend to the underclass and to people who are disenfranchised is really resonant. So I think, um, you know, con law is a kind of place where you get to explore all these sort of philosophical questions about like, what are the meaning of rights and like what in its best form can, you know, a court like this do for people. And you can feel pretty good about it at the end of the day if you're not careful. Does anyone like say, so there's no like discussion of, uh, there is like, you know, the fourth section of the seminar is not, hey, maybe this thing is bullshit, you know? Like, <laughs> 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 the case for eliminating the Supreme Court, there's nothing like that. It's a, it's all sort of court veneration the way it's done. That would have been amazing, but it's so hard to imagine, right? Because the kinds of people who become con law scholars at elite law schools and maybe even less elite law schools are people who have gone through clerkships. They're very attached to their judges. They've made good in all of the ways that a lawyer should. And so there's no reason for them to really question this institution. I mean, fundamentally, the law is like a very like conservative and self-preserving discipline, right? So, I mean, I think like Aziz, Amna, and Marbury are like obviously very critical and like wonderful, but they're so the exception. You know, I wish mm. I could have been in their classes. That's awesome. But no, hell no. There's no questioning of like, this is bullshit. Let's throw this out, right? I will say that, like, uh, Andy, I've been asking you in a second. I will say, like, it could, I, I have a question to ask you. It's just like, as both of us are legal lay people, right? But people who have had, you know, however many years of talking to people on the left. And I will say that of all those years, that this was one of the first and the most clearest, at least, articulation about why the Supreme Court was bad that I had heard. Mm -hmm. You know, like, you don't, even on the left, you don't really hear. I mean, have you heard much like the Supreme Court is absolute bullshit and we should eliminate it um, <laughs> type of type of argument coming out of the left? On the left, I mean, I see a lot of Facebook posts from people who like will say that, yeah, the Supreme Court is stupid and it's so undemocratic. And I actually kind of thought it was more mainstream than Tammy was saying um, at the risk of saying too much. My wife also went to one of these elite law schools and con law was taught by this kind of famous guy, Lawrence Lessig. And I don't know if he's the exception, but the, the, the impression I got from my from my wife was that the theme in all these classes was the Supreme Court's just going to say whatever it wants to say, <laughs> and that it was political, and that it wasn't this hallowed institution. And oh, wow, that's new. Yeah. But I but mm -hmm. but he's not. You know, if you look look up his 2016 presidential campaign, I mean, he's, he's like quite unusual. <laughs> yeah, he, he's he's idiosyncratic. But in oh those, wait, it's that guy who ran for president. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> he's on but not, a lot. Right, but he's not like a Bernie type guy. He's just yeah, sort of yeah, like our institutions are broken, yeah. but I'm here to fix them. Right. Yeah. So he's not that radical. And to me, it actually seemed like I don't know. It seemed kind of like within the realm of you know a top three, top five law school that you could have this. It would be okay to criticize the court for being undemocratic, um, just like the sort of like, okay, at a lot of these elite institutions to talk about how elite institutions are bad and how capitalism is bad in a way that's sort of kind of pat, pat yourself on the back, you oh. know, but not really challenging, you know, the actual um, like possible, like not to actually go in the direction of actually tearing them down, but in a sort of like, <laughs> yeah. this, this, this like sort of shores up our legitimacy that we can, we can see through um, our own power. Um, so I don't know. I didn't think it was actually, I'm kind of surprised that Tammy says that, you know, at her 
<laughs> we're not naming names, right? At her law school, that um, okay. that we went to NYU. <laughs> let's, let's just get out. Of it. Let's yeah. not. We don't need to. Like you know, it's yeah. fine. Yeah, that she was taught um, that. Yeah, it's like weirder. I think it so Go depends ahead, on the professor, right? So it's just yeah. luck. But what I'll say about like how this is different than you know talking about Marxism in an abstract way when you have you know you're amassing capital on the side is that <laughs> is that like as you were saying earlier in in our chat, Andy, like vote it you know law school is also vocational to some extent. So of course, like at elite law law schools, like some of the people are going to be professors and they're not going to be like probably doing low level court, like state court litigation, but like they are people who are invested in the, these, in, these institutions, like directly, like they, yeah. they want, they can perhaps critique some politicization of the court or whatever, which we can discuss that. I mean, that already is like an assumption that is kind of weird because of course it's political, right? So it's not politicized, but anyway, I'm just bracketing that there are people who want to be clerks on the Supreme court. So what, what type think, of people you know, is that? Like, what type of people go into constitutional? Like, you know, we yeah. can say like, you know, people who become cops are generally like people who bullied people in the lunchroom in <laughs> middle school, <laughs> or or people who are co- you know their parents are cops. But like, who? What type? Or we can say like journalists are, you know, nerds with like a borderline personality disorder. <laughs> so like, what? <laughs> what type of people go into constitutional law? Yeah, is it like? Laws? Is it the? Is it the theory people? You know how every discipline, discipline has a theory kind of field? Is it like the yeah. theory people in law? I think it can be the theory people when you're talking about who becomes a con law scholar. But practitioners yeah. of con law can be kind of like the ACLU crowd. So the crowd that doesn't necessarily want to do direct legal services where they're kind of in the thick of like low level direct client stuff, but they want to do impact litigation because they truly believe in the kind of legacy of like, you know, Brown and all the civil rights cases that we can use the court to make a difference for people, for mass groups of people. And is it like, you know, is it mostly, it's, is it mostly people all on the right? Is it like Federalist Society people all try and get into con law or is it, or is it people I think it's both. I mean, the ACLU crowd that I was talking about is obviously much more left wing, but certainly there's like, like I remember in my con law class, I would fight all the time in discussion because there was a row of Mormon men who somehow were sitting behind me. And they had Federalist Society type politics. And so we would argue about, you know, I don't know, even know what we were arguing about, probably abortion cases or something. But um, certainly they had a different view of like what the court was for, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, we have uh, the reason why I ask is, well, I have two reasons. The first is completely self-interested is that I have a nemesis from high school (laughs) and I'm not a competitive person at all. I just like, I, you know, I don't really care, but the about that sort of nemesis thing, but I do have a nemesis from high school. He's very successful. He clerked for two Supreme Court justices. And I always think in my head, that's the type of person who goes into constitutional law because it is, you know, like he went to, <laughs> went to like Yale Law School. He's like, you know, and so um, I, I, I have this picture in my head, the type of person who occupies these spaces. I don't think it's necessarily fair, but it does seem like a great deal of ambition goes into it, right? Like the people who do it are extremely, sure, like perhaps the most ambitious people and people who might not even care about money. They would care more about personal ambition than money. Is that accurate? I have a point to asking all these questions. <laughs> I, get there. I feel like you want me to say yes. Uh, no, but you don't have to say yes. You can say, you know, you can say no, it's just kind of like the lazy burnouts or Travis Birkenstock from 
clueless <laughs> whoever um you know um is it is it is it a play like i i just want to know the type of person who goes into this because i think it you know the conversation around the court revolves around the people who are in there who are all a certain type at least in my head but maybe i'm wrong I think that there are different categories. So the three I guess I've laid out so far are the people who are like theory heads, the way that Andy put it. You know, they love just like to think about the Supreme Court and jurisprudence and the constitutional questions before them are like abstract and fun to play with. Right. And that's probably your guy. Right. Somebody who's just like an A plus 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 student in law school and is just like so good at like what the rubric of like legal study is and they become super hey, he's so part, smart right? yeah yeah and sure and his yeah. his brain is like spinning in a particular way right and but yeah. then i think there are these kind of like you know fed sock type people who are like i'm gonna use this to like you know libertarianize like you know america <laughs> and then there are people that are closer to us who are probably like you know yeah, maybe some of this is bullshit, but there's a lot of precedent for change. And I can do that at mm-hmm. like the ACLU. I can do that at CCR. And, you know, I think some of those people do really amazing work. And also we should be clear that like constitutional law questions are considered at lower courts too. And so even like a public defender, you know, or somebody who's like in direct legal services on the civil side can make constitutional arguments. I don't know. The reason why this episode is interesting to me was because it was, you know, it was a real sort of problematizing is that the right word it's the most academic term that <laughs> you I'll sound use. so smart the now problematizing of, <laughs> of, of that basic concept i think that the thing that i want to talk about here is that like do you think that court packing is a good option for the left right and i can give you one reason why it wouldn't be and i think it is a sort of cls type of argument critical legal studies type argument that might not hold that much water and might be too theoretical but essentially like if let's say you have 40 justices on the supreme court right mm-hmm. and they're all array of political background you have like a libertarian you have you know i don't know you have like an anarchist you have uh <laughs> a bunch of centrist democrats a bunch of centrist republicans you have some like you know charlie kirk matt gates whoever on the and that nobody really knows what the, who the justices are. And it becomes a sort of almost anonymous mm-hmm. body that is handing down tablets from the Supreme Court. Doesn't that become, isn't it harder at that point to hold it to any sort of accountability? Like, isn't the reason why the court is accountable in any sort of way right now, which I guess it's not, but you know, like within <laughs> the eyes of the public is that we kind of yeah. know, you know? Like, so for example, with affirmative action, like uh, everybody knows that Sandra Day O'Connor basically said, in 25 years, we won't need affirmative action. It's sort of held up as this big thing that is, you know, and Republicans, people on the right say, well, it's been 25 years almost, like, what's the deal? Um, These types of decisions and the opinions that they write end up being debated and discussed and litigated, and you can sort of create arguments from them. If the court becomes anonymous, does it just become more powerful? Hmm. But who's being held accountable? The justices themselves? Like Sandra Sandra Day O'Connor can't go out for lunch without getting heckled? Like, what? what is the accountability of, <laughs> well, uh, of having the nine? She's nine. dead, so I think, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever. Like, <laughs> yeah. like yeah. Roberts, was he, the swing, was he the swing on the Obamacare yeah. one? Yeah. Whoever, like, did the right. swing on the Obamacare one was, was like, Roberts, I yeah. did it because, like, I have to show my face in public. Is that how we think it works? With no, my... I don't think it's that. I don't think it's a accountability in that sort of way, but that they do have, they're well-known figures who have to make their arguments and defend yeah. their arguments, right? And that if the court ends up being 40 people, then that becomes mushed out and it's just the decision. 
I think that is no kind of what you're saying, though, Jay, right? Because like Roberts being Chief Roberts, that means this is his court. Like in history, this will be written as like the Roberts court, right? And so I do think his reputation came into play during that ACA decision. I mean, the ACA mm-hmm. is going to come up again in November and it's super freaky. They could like do away with the entire fucking thing this year. To me, that is like one of the number one cases. But anyway, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I actually think court packing is fine. I mean, I don't know if it's a leftist program, but I think it's a good liberal program that we should support if it actually gains enough support to be a valid possibility. And I think, um, you know, Jay, you'd mentioned like, you know, federal judges don't, they have lifetime tenure. And so that would be true even if we packed the court. But the thing is, you could treat it like it was in the old days where basically it it was part of like the circuit courts, meaning like the middle yep. federal courts, the appellate courts, right? Where people would rotate on and off. Last month, I don't know if you guys saw, like it's not going to go anywhere, but Ro Khanna and a couple other Congress people, you know, sponsored a bill that would basically give, basically do court packing and give people 18 year terms after which they would be like senior judges who would fill in for vacancies. So, oh. you know, I mean, I, I actually am kind of okay with this, and I think it's a good thing to entertain. Is it a path to revolution? No. What is the problem that's trying to solve, though? Just that no, those nine justices are too it's, too, it's too, it's too long to wait for things to change, or it's too, um, like, it's like, it's, 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 what's the word, immune to change if it's stuck at nine? It's just too much power in the hands of too few for too long. Okay. But... So it for doesn't that proposal, change the institution to court pack, right. you know. Right. Yeah, and it's like it's not like the people would change. Right now, the problem with the with the Supreme Court is essentially that nine law professors uh, have complete impunity to do whatever they want. Right, right. like the, right. it's a fully undemocratic process that's populated by like the most elite people, like the most ambitious and most intelligent legal minds of their generation. As like you know, I don't know. Now people are arguing, well, Amy Coney, like you can see it in the defense of Amy Coney Barrett by people like uh, Noah Feldman, where they're like, well, she's smart. And when I hung out with her, she really knows her stuff. And just like, well, you know, like who fucking cares? Yeah, it's just just reading some books and being able to talk like many people can do that. (laughs) Right. Um, But that that, you know, I don't think that if you expand the court to say like 30 people, those 30 people would still be the exact same people. Right. It's not like they would start going outside and fighting. Okay, so here's one good argument, which Ellie Mistal has been making, who works at The Nation for a number of years about this, which is if you let's say like right now, obviously, you know, the process at the Supreme Court is like basically somebody is tasked with writing a decision and then their clerk has to go around and try to gain support for that decision. Right. And like that decision, the language of that decision changes with each judge's like tweak of, okay, I agree with this graph, but not that graph, blah, blah, blah. So Ellie, I think, makes a very convincing argument that like if you have 20 or 30 judges, say, on one decision, there's a moderating influence just by that sheer number. So even though you still have like the same kind of population of elites, again, I'm not trying to say that this is like a path for like leftist, you know, social change, but I do think it would it could prevent like some of the worst tendencies of the court that we see now, you know, and I think also if you are kind of rotating people out through a circuit, you do get more voices. And um, I think it could be beneficial as compared to now. So it sounds like the issue isn't so much that there are more there's a majority of conservative judges or justices is that there's it's too extreme. The ratio is too extreme. And with a greater number, you would just have always this sort of. Uh, tendency to just kind of meet in the middle, right? 
um, because like it's you know a fraction of nine is bigger than a fraction of twenty one or whatever. Um, but then a lot of the decisions would still kind of, kind of come down to like eleven versus ten or you know nine versus twelve, and it would just kind of keep having these like squeakers all the time. It's possible that, that you could also have like more of a rotation of who those thirty people are. Yeah, it's like right now we're basically two extremely close um, elections where a candidate lost a popular vote have set a 6-3 supermajority, right, yeah. um, within the Supreme Court. And everything that we care about in terms of the law is probably going to become undone because of that. And it just seems like such a bizarre circumstance. Like if Ruth Bader Ginsburg had held on for three more months, you know, then mm. you would have this total change. And that perhaps that's like too contingent of process to actually be tenable anymore and court packing would solve that like what do you yeah. guys think about all this stuff where like you know kamala harris and joe biden won't you know <laughs> won't commit to saying a word about it <laughs> like, i just find it so weird is that a good so sign weird. though that means that, that they're gonna do it no. oh sure but like do you, do you <laughs> I, I just found it weird didn't you find like the whole thing in the vice presidential debate to be so weird it was like, super weird mike pence was essentially like being like are you gonna do it and he she was, was like, like doing it. all like she like wasn't particularly good at doing you know at doing these like kind of laughing deflections you know <laughs> and like when, like, when, mike, when mike pence does like the cross x like i want you to know that he did not answer the question <laughs> or he did not answer the question that means like you know is it's that a debate term good. the cross x yeah 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 okay. it's yes. after you give your constructive Cross, speeches the yeah. other team oh. comes it's like the most abusive part of policy debate gotcha. which is amazing because policy debate is so abusive <laughs> but um you know if you want to watch like 17 year old kids from the suburbs of chicago be absolutely cruel and horrible to each other you should watch a debate round and watch them do debate uh watch them do cross x you know it's like wow. it, like it, okay. they just say everything it's like yeah but your dad is poor so brutal um all right so that the, the the actual you know this is the last question i feel like it was a long wind up which is that you know the one thing that struck me while i was listening to this podcast tammy and andy please chime in as well is that i don't know like you know it does seem like there's too much faith put in the law right now in terms of achieving politics and the thing that i was thinking about mm -hmm. which i don't think was discussed as much on their podcast which i think we want to discuss here uh so that we're not just rehashing another podcast you know that uh <laughs> is you know i just keep thinking about the night of the muslim ban right and uh mm -hmm. all the people who went out to protest like i went out to jfk and then everybody moved over to the brooklyn courthouse and like the aclu attorneys during that time were celebrities like they were yeah they were treated as heroes and in in some ways they are you know like they're doing they're really working very hard. And then hundreds of millions of dollars flood into the ACLU, right? Because people mm -hmm. see that this is the real line of defense. And as a result, the ACLU, with all this money, starts hiring a bunch of new lawyers. New lawyers want to take the ACLU in a new direction where it is fulfilling the, the fantasy that people had who, do, who gave that money of what the ACLU is doing. I don't know. Do you think it is good, though, to have like so much of the money, so much of the focus of politics sort of left-wing politics progressive politics be caught up in legal institutions hmm. so i would say that i think aside from that moment over the past four years people don't have that much faith in law right now that's you don't think so feeling. i don't think so i don't feel like i feel like even my friends from law school who are litigating and doing things on the good side um just feel like the institution is kind of empty and they're not quite sure and that they actually 
are very clear on the fact that we need like those people who are in the streets who are at JFK to be doing more of it. So I don't, I don't know. I mean, do you guys, do you guys feel like people have a lot of faith? Do you think I don't that's know a, if this is a high point in my life. I think it might be a low point in my life. Tammy, do you think that's a change because of Trump or something else or this is a novelty or? I think it's worse right now because obviously like all of our institutions are kind of fucked. And also, I mean, aside from the Supreme Court, I mean, all of the federal courts right now are filled with Trump appointees. He's appointed so many judges to district and appellate courts. It's not like that to me is scarier because that whole like ladder is really messed up right now. Um, You know, and I think. Korean dude I know became one. Really? Uh, Yeah. I texted him and he was like, he's like, oh yeah, I don't work there anymore because I'm now a federal judge. And I was like, what? Is he any good? (laughs) No, he's part of the federal. I mean, he's a nice guy, you know, to me, but he's part of the federal society. Oh Oh, wow. They take Koreans now? Well, that's what I was saying, you know, good for us, you know. We made it. <laughs> we made it. We did it. Maybe, maybe he'll be the first, uh, he'll be Matt Gates, President Matt oh Gates' first appointee, you know. He's, Matt so Gates will be total with beyond, beyond a fresh in terms of diversity. He's like, well, I have a, first of all, I have a Latino son. <laughs> my appointee is this Korean dude. <laughs> oh Eddie, um, uh, what do you think? Is, is there too, do we have too much focus in the law? Yeah, I mean, I think I I don't know about if it's going up or down, but I kind of think I'm hopeful to hear what Tammy said that legal institutions are basically reacting to what happens outside the law. Like that's that's my kind of default assumption of how this stuff works anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. I guess it's good that we kind of keep that in focus and that I don't like. So like the people who I think are criticizing too much faith in, you know, RBG, too much faith in the Supreme Court. I, I do feel like that's kind of a mainstream position on, on like, let's say the Jacobin left, right? Like, like, yay left, right? Like yeah. on the internet professional, but they read like Twitter and social media and they, these ideas I think are spreading. I don't know if they're new ideas or, you know, maybe they, I don't know if they were discussed 20 or 30 years ago, but I think it's a pretty mainstream position now that there's too much of this sort of liberal worship of individuals who are mm-hmm. under, undemocratically selected and, um, don't have term limits. And um, so, you know, I think I, I, I've i always kind of felt like legal institutions are always kind of forced to react to, to you know, changes in consensus, changes in opinion. Yeah, I, I don't know. It's interesting because I, I don't think it's a mainstream position, Andy. Like, I think it is a mainstream position within a very, within yeah. the mainstream of a small group, right? Like, I think that that is true. But I think that with all the resistance people, for example, let's say, right, their fantasy is essentially using the legal system to undo Trump. Like that's, yeah. that's what they want. Yeah. Impeachment. Right. They want like put him in jail. They would, Russia, you know, like he broke the law, yeah. all these things, like the, the Ukraine thing, like, which I still don't under, like, I'm sorry, I'm going to admit this. I don't even understand what happened for that. You know, I quote <laughs> it and I was like, what, so what did he say? You know, it seems like it's like, I couldn't really follow it, but there's all this fantasy that the law will, adjudicate on the side like that it'll be fair and that it'll be impartial and that i don't know understand why these people feel this way given that they also turn around and say that the legal system is racist right and that like uh we should defund the police etc etc but i don't know i think that that sort of tension right now i don't know i find Mm -hmm. it to be totally fascinating i i personally do think that tammy i i kind of agree with you in the sense that i don't think that people will that a lot of that outside of that one moment that 
everybody's mm-hmm. giving money to ACLU that that um that people are falling out of love with the legal system and legal solutions but I still do think that that was like the main mobilization point for so many people who were not just on the left, but also in the center left, right? Mm. Like everybody thought the ACLU was going to save us. And it turns out the ACLU, you know, is the ACLU. It's a great institution that is go- undergoing like some rapid change. I don't know. It's yeah. going, undergoing a lot of change, but it clearly is not like a savior at this right. point. Do you guys think this mirrors a little bit critiques of like executive power? Because obviously out of the three branches, like the most, you know, classically democratic one is legislature, right? And I think like good, consistent leftists were mad at Obama for using and expanding the executive, you know, executive orders and like the executive power so much, right? Um, And now we're suffering for some of that. And um, so I'm wondering, like, do you guys see that among your friends who are like liberals or leftists? Like, are they discussing oh, yeah, the president shouldn't be able to do X, Y, and Z. This is not something that the executive should be able to do. Um, no, but, you know, it was... Uh, I, I do think that that sort of idea was strange to tag to Obama because, like, the people who would argue about that sort of, sort of stuff was always, like, Charles Krauthammer and stuff like that, you know, mm-hmm. that the executive should have more power. Um, and so... Yeah, I don't think that people really think about it in terms of Obama, even though they should. Like, I, see. I think they think Trump is a is a dictator, but I don't think they understand like that legally a lot of the pathways towards expanded you know executive power came during the Obama administration. Hmm. It's not something that I see at least. Yeah, I mean, Jay, it sounds like the picture you're describing are professional class partisans, right? Like professional class devoted to the Democratic Party types. Um, so I don't know, this seems like a conversation we have, you know, we've had a lot uh, the last few weeks and <laughs> it might just be like, you know, I'm in my own little bubble and I don't encounter as many of those people. I, I do kind of feel like, um, I, th- I don't know, I think a lot of people would be like, even if they if, even if they think like you should use illegal inst- institutions to impeach Trump, but you also point out to them that the Supreme Court is deeply undemocratic. I think people would be open to that. Um, and this idea that the Supreme Court is political, I think that's probably, you know, if you could kind of come with like sort of XY chart, that, that sentiment has risen hmm. more since in the last 20, 30 years. I don't know. I feel like, because that was, you know, a kind of a radical position, I think, in the kind of late 20th century when a lot of these critical versions of legal theory began. And now those are not confined to you know, the ivory tower. You know, Trump knows about CRT now. Yeah. So <laughs> right. I think, I think, I think, I think this, it's kind of sub- <laughs> seeped, yeah, yeah, it's seeped into the subconscious a little bit, I feel like, yeah. but it might just be yeah. like people haven't thought too hard about the contradiction that you, you pointed out, Jay. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think that essentially that people who are committed to radical politics should just call for the Supreme Court to, you know, divest power, you know, but I don't think that that's particularly realistic. And so mm. I kind of fall on Tammy the same way that you do, which is that uh, pragmatically you have to pack the court as a way for it to dilute power because otherwise in the current system, it's always going to be this dog and pony show every time somebody God. is elected, every time someone dies, it's going to be, you know, it's just, I think it's like, I do not think that Amy Coney Barrett is an escalation from Kavanaugh, but I also think that it is inevitable that these confirmations will escalate, right? And that um, it's not going to be like 
Lin- acoustic Lindsey Graham saying, I voted for Sotomayor, you know? <laughs> um, Lindsey Graham is like, I don't know. I know that he's a ghoul, but I will say that like there's like this part of me that grew up in the South that appreciates yeah. this like kind of country lawyer type of thing. Oh you know, God. purely apolitically. You know, where I know it's disgusting, but like I, I don't know. Like it's um, a familiar theater to you? Yeah. <laughs> You're like, I know it's like that watching, character. It's like watching Perry Mason and Perry Mason like <laughs> like was, was like a ghoul. A ghoul. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but like you know you grow up like reading about atticus finch and stuff like that you feel this veneration for like this you know like the the, the southern lawyer right and like it doesn't matter what side he's on if he can do the performance it's still the performance oh is still evoked some sort of emotion to me and Lindsey ground unplugged i will admit like i was just like when he's like elections matter and then he does like the self-deprecating thing i ran you know i only got one percent you know, I thought I was a good candidate. I don't know. I mean, I, I understand why the right goes like, like still kind of likes that guy. I hope he loses. That's hilarious. His oh, yeah, I know. Like, I That's looking interesting. That's kind of close, yeah. The, yeah. Best, the best picture Lindsey Graham is with no power and like on Fox News. You know, giving soliloquies. It's like there's a tree in South Carolina that's called the. <laughs> anyway, um, all right. So our next topic. Um, this one, I think, uh, is, you know, there is an article in the New York Review of Books, Tammy, that you wanted us to read by Helen Epstein. It was called Left Behind. It's in the uh, March 26th issue. And it is about like something that I think a lot of people have been talking about online and, you know, everywhere for the past <laughs> couple of weeks. And it's escalated with a couple dumb tweets that we don't have to rehash <laughs> here. There's this idea of like white economic anxiety. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> you know, it starts out with a lot of sort of, you know, there's a lot of facts at the beginning of this article, which I think was particularly well written. Life expectancy for the first time in America, Andrew Yang talked about all this uh, quite a bit, is dropping for the, you know, since 2015. It's the first time in a very long time. Almost all of these are fueled by suicides and the opioid epidemic. Um, And there's a part that I wanted to read of the article um, right now, which is just that virtually the entire increase in mortality has been among white adults without bachelor's degrees, some 70% of all whites. Blacks, Hispanics, college-educated whites, and Europeans also succumb to suicide, drug overdoses, and alcohol-related deaths, but at much lower rates than have that have ri- risen little, if at all, over time. Um, so I don't know, like, like what, what do you think about this question? Like, it, it's brought up all the time. J.D. Vance will do his, like, you know, <laughs> op-ed and talk about the hillbilly allergy. And, um, you know, like, uh, Ross Douthat will talk about sort of decadence. But, like, wh- wh- what do you think here? Like, is there not enough made about, about sort of, like, white ep- economic anxiety and, and, like, death? Yeah, what it's, do you like, guys think? Threat, I feel like, huh? Yeah. What do you guys think? Because this also remember, obviously, when Trump was making his like overtures to, you know, the quote unquote white working class. And we had to talk about the white working class being left behind like so much. I think I was kind of exhausted by that, even though I knew, you know, some of this data obviously around opioid deaths and suicides is super serious shit. And it's also the basis for, you know, class based organizing. But yeah, I'm just wondering, like, what was your guys' feeling in those early months when we just, I felt like we had to talk about it all the time. Um, I was more sympathetic towards what uh, was being said, I think, than many people on the laughter in Democratic circles. Mm. Like, I didn't understand why 
there is such a deflection all the time to point out that these people are racist. Like, I don't necessarily oh, care mm-hmm. that somebody is racist if they're dying of a opioid epidemic and every single person in their family is dead. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a tragedy either way. And I don't make moral pronouncements on that sort of stuff. And I, it's not because I'm like some sort of angelic person. I just think it's weird. You know, like, mm-hmm. isn't it sad that a whole bunch of people are dying in West Virginia? Like, shouldn't that be sad to everybody? So I don't quite get what the deflection is of that point. But didn't it feel like that was a major deflection? Like, let's not talk about white economic anxiety because, uh, you know, like it's just a form of oppression Olympics where they say, well, X person, X people have it worse. Right. Well, Um, the other deflection was actually the working class is really diverse. And if you go to probably in a city, right, you'll see a lot much more like, you know, black, Latino, Asian workers, which is also a fair point, right? Like the work, it's not as if these things are stratified by, by skin color. Um, but yeah, I was kind of like with Jay, I was, I was sort of like, I didn't think that, I didn't think that was, I thought it was fine to talk about this stuff because it's real and not just because, not necessarily because I even have like a bleeding heart, you know, for, or can pretend to know what it's like for a lot of these people. It's just like, if you're interested in politics, like these, this, as this article points out, this is the majority of the country, you know, like you can't, how can you pretend to yeah. care, pretend to care about winning elections when you're also saying like, screw the majority of the the quantitative majority of this country. Um, I pointed out to you guys that there's an article this summer from Barbara Fields and Adam mm-hmm. Rothman who kind of make the exact same point and they cite the same book. Um, I forget the, there was the, the that's also discussed in the Helen Epstein article. And again, they're kind of saying like um, this sort of like pure, not even Puritan, just sort of like moralistic versions of like uh, condemnations of racism and white fragility and white privilege are not very strategic, right? Because you want you don't want people to feel like yeah. they're being blamed and left out and kicked out of the country. You want to f- want them to feel like they have a place in some sort of political vision, or you know, at the very least, like vote for your candidate. And so, yeah. right? So it's like, what is what is the point of ostracizing, um, sure. you know, or excluding these types of stories? Right. But I think I was frustrated by the fact that, like, in recognizing that, we then were saying, oh yeah, and that. You know, Trump, Trump had like a majority of like white working class people like that was his base, which I think is bullshit because like later we saw the income data and we knew that people who were voting for him were actually quite well to do. So that was I think that like political connection was the thing that like frustrated me to no end. But yeah, I agree with you guys. Like we have to talk about this and organize with these people. Right. Yeah, and not not to relitigate the 2016 election, but it wasn't so much the numbers. It was like who swung. Sure. Yeah. From Obama who to Trump. Up, like you showed up like in northern Florida to vote, et cetera. So yeah, that was yeah. sort of like a surprise. But no, Tammy, I agree with you. I think that if we can divorce it from the political context around the conversation of who votes for Trump, then it becomes more interesting. And the defense is essentially what Andy you just said, which is like, well, you shouldn't just call it the working class and assume that the entire white working class is white. I agree with that. I think that that's a dangerous and stupid thing that people do. But it's a, that what you're talking about at that point is sort of a classif- classification error, right? It, it's not saying that the, those concerns right. are wrong within the white working class. It's essentially saying just put white working class in front of, instead of just working class, right? Just, we can all just agree to do. We can call it the white working class. Um, <laughs> that I, I, the, the interesting thing about the Epstein article, I think, is that she goes on and she sort of argues that um, that it's not necessarily even just poverty that's leading to this. It's not just mm-hmm. economic conditions. And this is where the article, I think, becomes fascinating and totally. certainly more thorny and something that we can both agree and disagree with. But the, you know, the relevant 
the relevant like excerpt is here, which is, but while poverty in America is all too real, it's not the only reason for the epidemic of deaths of despair. Poor states like Arkansas and Mississippi have seen smaller increases in overdose deaths than wealthier Florida, Maryland, Delaware, New Jersey, Connecticut, and New Hampshire and Maine. Deaths of despair continued their steady rise right until the uh, right through the 2008 financial crisis, when many Americans lost homes and jobs and didn't jump in frequency, as we'd expect if economic circumstances alone were the cause. Blacks without a BA earned between 20 and 27 percent less than whites without a BA. But even though addiction remains a problem in African American communities, non-black, non-BA blacks are nevertheless 40 percent less likely than non-BA whites to die from suicide, alcohol, or drug overdoses. If poverty alone can't explain this epidemic, what's going on? Case and Deaton, these are two scholars that wrote yeah. a study, suggest that it may have something to do with the ways in which non-BA whites have responded to the radical changes that have upended the world over the last century or so. The 1970s uh, economy inflicted suffering on non-BA people of all ethnicities, but the psychological toll on whites might have been worse because their expectations were so much higher. Um, what do you think about that, Andy? Yeah. That was that the line jumped out to me because I felt like you would need a lot of evidence to prove that. That's kind of a crazy claim, right? <laughs> yeah. Like what white people in general just have higher expectations, yeah. and uh, this is their curse. I don't know. I mean, maybe they have research in the book. But I'd be, I, my first instinct was like, I wonder what the source is for that. Well, like, okay, so part of it, she does go on to argue. <laughs> financial hardship has long been part of historic reality for Black Americans, often attributed rightly to discrimination. Perhaps for this reason, Blacks are more likely to sympathize with poor and unemployed friends and relatives and help out when possible. Europeans are similarly likely to see their personal misfortunes in political terms, blaming the governments and even taking to the streets and pr- protest fiscal policies they see as harmful, as the French are doing now. So essentially, the argument is that white people don't know how to cope with being poor. You know, they don't know how to deal with disappointment. They don't know how to deal with like their factories. <laughs> they, they internalize it, whereas yeah, people like, in Europe join socialist parties and stuff. There's like an incredibly unkind interpretation yeah. of this. You're just like, well, the black people are singing spirituals around the fire to each other. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, not the, come, that's not the best part of the article. Let's say. They come through the blues, you know, like yeah. there's, there's a strange, like that is sort of like the uncharitable way to read this. Like, is there a more charitable way to read this, Tammy? Yes. Than that? Okay. <laughs> like that. Well, I think this part actually makes a lot of sense to me because I think that and I guess the, these aren't the only people, but there's like a lot of psychological data on this, whatever, whatever, about how, you know, it's kind of all based on your, your expectations. And so if white people like in the 70s, for instance, in Detroit, like I remember like interviewing like auto workers who would be like, oh, yeah, you could like, you know, there was that whole like stereotype of, like you could quit one factory and the next day find a new job. Right. So this whole thing about like you knew even if you didn't have a degree, you could get a job that would sustain your family and it would be a union job and it would be decent and you would get respect. And then suddenly like that stuff vanishes and like white people are used to shitting on black people also. Right. And like Latinos and Asians and Native Americans. And I think their inability to do that. I mean, in some ways this is just like the age old thing about like the ways in which like race divides us. Right. And like they can't see what they're suddenly sharing with like poor people of color, but I think it's real. And I think it leads to a yeah. ton of despair. Yeah. So I don't know, yeah. to me, it like, just like psychologically, like maybe it's a little psychobabbly, but it does make yeah. an intuitive sense. For sure. My, part of my reaction was just sort of, I'd like to know, like, it feels like this is the, there's like a methodological question. Is this like carving up of black people, white people, and I guess Latino people in these autonomous into these mm-hmm. autonomous groups, is that like the the academics doing it, or is that like how reality is? Because you don't get a sense that these groups actually 
overlap and live together. But there is like a mention of like a white woman who gets interviewed and has a black boyfriend. And it's like, well, she and her boyfriend are now in two different groups, mm-hmm. according to this, to this study. Yeah. And you, I, th- I think I would just kind of like to, you know, like tag along with them and see like, how do they do the interviews? What were these <laughs> towns actually like? Are they really as yeah. segregated as they seem to be? Because I think there is a little bit of a trick here that, you know, we've talked about uh, like uh, that, you know, Robert Fields talks about there's a circular way in which no matter how you carve up the population, one group's going to be more than and the other group's going to be less than. Right. And it's a bit of a fallacy to therefore just draw these causal conclusions as a result, right? Like the, if more left-handed people are, you know, do, using opioids, then it's not because they're left-handed necessarily, right? Um, on the other hand, these statistics are like big enough to suggest that there is something That's going on. So, yeah. right. So, but I don't know if like it's because they're white or because they're black, if that makes sense, right? Like, yeah, I don't know. Like the thing that jumps out to me that I kind of take issue with is this idea that that the reason why they're upset and the reason why they're sad is because they're not. It's not that they're not used to doing badly. I I, I believe that right. Like that there is probably a higher sense of entitlement, and as such, when it is not fulfilled, there is like a mm-hmm. bigger crash. Of people who are like, well, the system was never going to work for me anyway, right? But the part that I don't quite get is that like that they would be cognizant enough to know to compare themselves to you know <laughs> people not doing well they'd be like well listen i just read this article in the new york review of Fox and it said that <laughs> 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 we're doing terrible because we're not we have lost our edge you know yeah. <laughs> what's about this what's this parker said about like i don't yeah. know if that's the way that it functions but it's a fascinating argument. You know, the reason why I, I, I don't know, Tammy, you brought this and you want us to talk about it. I'm glad you did, because um, I think that that essentially, you know, like there is an argument here, I think, that is much more compelling than the usual arguments. And Andy, like, you know, I think you're hinting at this is that like kind of dividing this up into identities at this atomized level. Like, is it is it really telling us anything? Is it is it like, you know, it's sort of divisive in a sort of way? Um, like, are we, should we be talking about things in, in this sort of racialized way? So I think, so one thing I'll add to this conversation is the reason I think it works here is because you overlap this analysis with what we know about the opioid epidemic and the way that that drug has traveled. And then it makes sense to me because the way that the opioid epidemic has spread, like in this round of it is, is, you know, we know kind of about like pain medication and then people get hooked and then they go to street drugs. Right. And like the targeting of those communities in the Midwest through like those, like what we call like pill mills, like the pain centers, like those were white, like that, that traffic was basically white. And that's not to say that like black people and other people aren't using, but it just like the epidemic spread in that particular way that follows like white patterns of like opioid use. So I think in that sense, like this particular like narrow analysis does make sense to me that we can say like non-BA whites, non-BA blacks, even though it's kind of strange. Yeah, I think the question is, if you're going to use racialized analysis, look for ways that things actually are racialized, like the way Tammy was talking about. I think another persuasive one is to say, let's say the right wing's um, sort of personal responsibility politics is also quite racialized because it's kind of tied to like the GOP's whole dog whistle campaign of, um, which is obviously like kind of for, uh, is like shot through with sort of white identity politics. But to your point, Jay, about like mm-hmm. points of emphasis, I think, I mean, I think the article is fine, but I think there's a difference between, let's say, this article 
which you could perhaps be read together with the Fields and the Rothman article, where they're kind of saying the same thing, but they just kind of have different points of emphasis, where the Fields and the Rothman would say like, yes, there are all these differentials, but they all kind of come back to this thing that's shared in common, right? right? Whereas this article is kind of, I wouldn't say it's doing the opposite, right? But it's kind of, it's kind of doing a little bit of like mm -hmm. the saying, like we, we know all the shared in common causes, and then let's get into like the different kind of reactions or, or, or results, right? Um, and, you know, like on, on face value, they're both kind of saying the same thing. But, yeah. you know, there is a little bit of a difference in sort of connotation or takeaway. So Fields and Rothman, just for people to know, like the, the they wrote an article in Descent, I think, what, this summer? Yeah. And, you know, the takeaway from that, I think, is, you know, which I'll read from is, the main lesson is that a successful national political movement, movement must appeal to the self-interest of white Americans. White voters remain two-thirds of the electorate. The Republicans can, can still win a national election without a critical mass of non-white voters, but the opposition cannot unseat them without a critical mass of white voters. Therefore, those seeking genuine democracy must fight like hell to convince white Americans that what's good for mm -hmm. black people is also good for them. Um, and I, I, I guess the question that I have is, or and, um, I'll read a little bit more from it because I think there's another interesting part, which is that attacking white privilege will never build such a coalition. White working people, Hannah Pfizer, for example, are not privileged. In fact, they are struggling and suffering in the maw of a, a callous trickle up society whose obscene levels of inequality the pandemic is likely to increase. Did, uh, did Barbara Fields write AOC's uh, DNC speech? The recent decline in life expectancy among white Americans, which the economist Anne Case and Agnes Deacon uh, attribute to deaths of despair as a case in point. So like both of these are circling around the same idea. I, so like the fundamental question that I think is at the center of this is like, have, is, has a discourse around, you know, on in progressive circles, like this sort of, you know, hyper focus on race. Uh, does it make it impossible actually to have any sort of sympathy for for poor white people? Like that's kind of what every conversation about this on Twitter is, at least that I can see. Every sort of exchange of articles, every talk at JD Vance, everything, right? The entire <laughs> conversation around this is floating around one question that is almost always left unsaid, which is just like, have we? Is there no way to actually sympathize with white people, even if they're poor and on drugs? And like, is that is that the conversational problem that progressives have right now? Hmm. The interesting thing about the Epstein is that it has that nugget at the end, which confirms what Tammy was reporting from Montana, that there were Bernie to Trump voters, right? And that's yeah. that's yeah. that's a good thing. And we should, you know, people on the left should- It's a um, good thing that Bernie, that Bernie voters are <laughs> voting for Trump. In it's a good thing that Bernie could have won the Trump voters, let's say. Uh, okay, okay. Yeah. 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 Um, I don't know, Tim, what do you think? Is there, can we not talk about like, uh, can we not sympathize with white people anymore? I think we're, I think we are doing, I think like some of us have been doing a bad job of it yeah. quite, quite honestly. And I do think some of the, I mean, obviously we've crit criticized like white fragility and just like super woke POC stuff a lot on this podcast. But I think the reason we're doing that is because it does have political ramifications. And I do worry sometimes that, I don't know. Jay describes it as getting red pilled, like when we see <laughs> critiques that suddenly do kind of make sense to us. But on some <laughs> level, I hate. I know I'm him. No, I hate him. But like other yeah, people, I, I, I do have to sometimes agree. Like, yeah, I think sometimes we do talk too much about like, you know, whatever POC stuff and just all the like woke stuff. Like I think it can get out of control sometimes and we lose this like really clear class vision 
that is unifying, you know? And so, um, I don't know. I'm doing my part by being in Montana (laughs) 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 where I'm surrounded only by white people. Like I, I, I agree. I, like I feel more strongly about this, I think, than you do, Tammy. And I, you know, even <laughs> yeah. though you express it, which is, I do think that the big problem on progressive circles right now is that there is no way to talk about white people who are suffering, and that it always leads to this sort of deflection of why are you talking about white people? They're so privileged, and I, mm-hmm. I find that to be extremely strange and kind of out of. It's out of sync with like my not just my own personal experience, but my sort of conception of the world. Like I don't know, there are a ton of poor white kids that I grew Seriously. up with in the South. You know, they certainly weren't privileged in any sort of way. Half of them are in fucking jail. You know, yeah. us like sort of like esteemed kids of professors, like they're just out there just dumb rednecks, wouldn't give them the time of day. And mm-hmm. like you know, like they they had no access into the sort of pathways into the upper middle class or whatever, the staying within the upper middle class that the rest of us had. And, you know, like, it's not like they had pleasant sort of lives. And so I, I, I don't think that there's any way at this point to, to make those arguments without sounding like you're a reactionary, that you're on the right, or that you're, you know, and that when people even bring it up in the Bernie left, they get sort of excoriated, right? Like, they're like, mm. oh, well, these Bernie bros are racist. They only, you know, they're only really caring about the white people, et cetera. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I think it's a huge problem. Now, I don't know if, you know, Putting, pulling a whole bunch of data and saying like white people are sadder because they're, you know, they're more used to success, they're more used to winning is really going to be the thing that solves any of this. But I don't know. I, I think that it's, I think it's kind of dangerous. And like I think back to the beginning of the um, of the Rainbow Coalition, right, which started on I think Jesse Jackson started his campaign in on a on a small farm in Iowa or something like that, right? Like mm. he, like there was an explicit appeal to go to like. Um, farms it was going to like car manufacturing plants it was this idea that the rainbow coalition would also include white people mm-hmm. right and that in fact that white working class people white democrats people in union should understand that jesse jackson was the best option for them too yeah. that's gone you know that's gone like that type of conversation is gone like remember jamel Bowie wrote this for slate after 2016 art, uh, election i remember i, I think about mm, this article I a lot remember. this article essentially arguing that there should be another rainbow coalition that is centered around sort of like white not white working class, but broadly working class um, sort of union ideas that was not exclusive and not exclusionary, for example, right? And I don't know. I don't see anything like that four years later. You, you don't well, think Bernie? Been... That was with Bernie? No. I you know, think... think it was working class based. Okay. No. Well, I think no, maybe no, to I do, extent, I don't... but I mean, what about, we need to shout out like, William Barber and Liz Theo Harris, right? Because the moral sure. men-based stuff in North Carolina and coming out into a poor people's movement, that predated Jamel's piece, but maybe it's gotten a lot more steam since then. I mean, they, to me, are like visionaries. And I think they are doing exactly what you're talking about, Jay. The reason why Bernie wasn't um, Andy was because he's like a Democratic you know, senator from Vermont. And I don't, I think that he was making that argument but until like Nevada, you know, until like, uh, you know, until like T.O. Bernie and that sort of stuff, he wasn't doing the <laughs> other part of it. Right. It was almost like it was almost it felt more theoretical. It wasn't like Rainbow Coalition. Let's all do mm-hmm. this together. Right. Like it was like it was that towards the end. But like in 2016, I don't think it necessarily yeah, was. And then I think so. at the beginning of 2020, maybe it wasn't until like they, you know, they started really doing the Latino outreach and they and then Bernie started using like this is a multiracial, you know, like multi ethnic, mm-hmm. multi, like whatever, uh, campaign. 
I don't think that it was the same thing as like the Rainbow Coalition, you know, with Jesse Jackson. Um, I don't know how he got there, though. Like, it's, you know, that's the thing that that I can't quite crack, which is just like, well, how do you undo this type of, you know, language that where every single thing it demands a correction, right? Where every type of bit of concern that you have about like coal miners or something like that is followed up with, well, those coal miners are Trump voters, so fuck them, right? right. Like, it, it can that, like, because that stuff bothers me quite a bit. I think it's like devastatingly bad politics. I don't even care about elections. I just think it sucks, you know, like as a human. But like, so like, I don't know, like, is that stuff, un, is it irredeemable? Like, is it un, undoable? I think right now <laughs> during Black Lives Matter, it's next to impossible. And yeah. I don't know what the answer to that is. Because like, you know, people we like, like Mike Davis, Robert Fields, like, you know, and also like Ruthie Gilmore and like Paul Gilroy, like they will talk about like, okay, but more than white, more than half the people killed by cops are white. Much yeah. more than, more, much more than half, yeah. right? They are the majority. Yeah. And what do we do with that? And like, how do you, what do we, what kind of program do you have? Can you, is that compatible with Black Lives Matter? Like, of course, yes. Like in theory, it should be like an incredible boon to the movement, right? But it's not right now. And I don't know, I feel very pessimistic about fixing that right now. I mean, I think the way yeah. this has mostly been discussed, um, white poverty has been coverage of the opioid epidemic, which it feels like there was like a high point last year. It was just like on all these podcasts and all these publications. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe has it, has it just been eclipsed by Black Lives Matter and police brutality? Is it not going to come back? Because in Philadelphia, it's still a huge issue. But yeah. it seems like there was this kind of high point. There was talk about having one of those kind of safe self-injection centers. And then mm-hmm. the local neighborhood said no because they didn't want it in their neighborhood. And then it just kind of seems that it disappeared. So I don't know. I, but that is like one way in which they weren't calling it like white <laughs> like a white a white issue right but that was kind of the way to make it kind of um something that people would care about but yeah i don't know i mean people are not connecting people are not connecting the dots right between that issue and like police brutality well and actually weirdly in the opioid debate there was kind of a similar analogous dynamic racially where people like during when like you know sam kenyonis's book and some other like dope land and all that or dope sick or all those books came out like yeah. There was a strain in, in black users or like black, you know, I guess like harm reduction people who would be like, why do we only care that whites are dying? Right. You yeah. know, like we didn't care doing the crack epidemic, right? That was the whole like yeah. dialectic there. And so I don't, I feel like this is like a pattern of thinking that we're just so bad at. Yeah. It, the what about thing is like the linguistic currents and the argument of currency of social media, right? Just yeah. to bring up another example and say this thing is worse. And um, it works really well on social media doing a, a whole bunch of fallacious comparisons, right? <laughs> like that's sort of how Twitter runs, you know, where if you have any sort of, if you took like the LSAT and you got <laughs> over like, <laughs> you got over half the questions right on the games part, you're just like, this is terrible logic. But that's essentially what <laughs> is being argued all the time, right? Like it's just like X people have it worse. And, you know, yeah. what about X? And, I don't know. It's just like it's. Just, I, I find it to be completely exhausting at this point, right? Like it's it, and I find it. I actually think that the people who are making those arguments, and this is like, this is something that I tweeted about today, which is that I think that essentially there's a class element to this as well, where I think that many of the people who are hmm. sort of invested in this type of pure identity politics, where it's about oppression Olympics, right? Like I think a lot of the people who are making those arguments online essentially want a version of race that's totally flat. 
Like they don't want any sort of gradations within different people. It might be because a lot of them do come from backgrounds where they are more privileged, but they don't want to, you know, they don't want to be part of, they don't want to have to like not be part of the group or they don't want to have to like Mm. not be part of like, you know, they don't want to have to interrogate their own actual membership within like so and such, such and such group. And so flattening everything down into like a type of oppression Olympics does allow everybody to access it. Who is like superficially part of that group, whether, you know, for whatever reason, not superficially, but you know, part of it. So like all of us are Asian in the same way. Right. (laughs) Like, um, and I think that that works better for upper middle class, upperly mobile people because uh, then they don't have to admit their privileges. Right. If I'm the same as like some Cambodian fucking kid in East Oakland, you know, that's great for me if it, when it comes to oppression Olympics, right? right? right. It's like, I'm just fucking on his coattails. I'm like, let's go, you know? Yeah. Tell me everything that happened bad to you. Like, we're the same. <laughs> we're both Asian, brother. Yeah, you yeah. know, like, um, so like that, I don't know. I think a lot of that does happen. Yeah, um, and yeah. I think it sucks. Yeah. I don't know. That's that's my only point. I We did all of that just so that... Uh, <laughs> So that I, like Tammy can make a nice, uh, very nuanced point, and I can say this sucks. <laughs> All right, so our, our last topic there, third topic, is something that uh, you know, total change of pace. Andy, like, what is going on with Taiwan militarization? There was an article in the Times about how, um, so in Taiwan, I think like since '49, every male, uh, I don't know, around age 18 or 20 or so, has to do a couple of years of military service. My dad did it. They all, a lot of them did it on the same, this island in between China and Taiwan <laughs> that's very famous called Jinmen Island, or sometimes it's spelled Komoi in English. And it's famously like where all these like military drills were conducted. And I think men of a certain age in Taiwan, they all like spent two years there and the, uh, the liquor there is famous. Um, so it was like this oh, thing yeah. that was like for a certain, like Wait, famous in what way? What, why is the liquor famous? Yeah, Probably because it was, I think it was like super, either super strong or super expensive or super, it's called um, yeah. Galiang. And I don't know, Taiwanese people oh. might know what I'm talking about. I think I've had it. It's pretty good. Uh, it's one of those, you know, Baijiu, <laughs> the oh, rice okay. liquors for like, yeah. anyway. Uh... Um, so for like for a certain baby boomer generation, it's like this thing that we all, they all shared in common. I see. If you're like a Generation Z in Taiwan, that's what this article is talking about. You see it trans- like military service transparently as this like huge waste of time. Yeah. And, and there's like nobody signing up to actually be in the military long term. And this is an issue, though, because, you know, with the sort of U.S., China, all this talk of a new Cold War, there is like people are once again raising this kind of 70 year old question of like what happens if China invades (laughs) Taiwan? Um, Would they be able to fight it off? What would the United States do? Um, I think. Yeah. So I I think I don't know. it, it, It brings out these questions of like a lot of young Taiwanese people, they might actually support having a robust military to fend off China. That, you know, mm-hmm. like the opinion of China and Taiwan is quite low right now. On the other hand, polls show that over half of them would, or like 40, 50% of people, men in Taiwan would say they do not actually want to do the fighting, right? Which is probably mm-hmm. also like an all-time high or like a low point in morale. So I don't know. I think yeah, we're in this kind of... What we do and just have a bunch of immigrants come in and make <laughs> them go serve in the military? Yeah, yeah. like nobody <laughs> yeah, wants yeah. to fight. We're in this sort of, I think there's a sort of like postmodern cynicism that's sit in, like we don't actually care about these, like this sort of alarmist rhetoric from the Cold War period that China's going to invade. Nobody actually believes it anymore. And yet at the same time, I think that's cause for alarm because like the military apparatus, like people who are very serious about this stuff, right? They actually think that the possibility of war is um, potentially on the rise. And I don't know. Mm-hmm. I'm, 
I know some people who care about this and think like there is a threat, but um, I don't know. My general take on a lot of this stuff is like, uh, I don't think. How front and center is it in the minds of the Taiwanese? Because like, you know, the thing that I always find interesting, Tammy, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I'm right. But I'm basing this totally on what my dad says, and he's not always right. Which is that like, if all the freakouts that happen about North Korea that where we're like, oh my God, they fired a missile and everybody in America goes on high alert, that in Korea, their experience is you know, much <laughs> less of a big problem, right? Yeah. That, um, they don't... It's just like normal life. They don't really think about it yeah. and they just kind of laugh it off. Is that is that what it's like in Taiwan with with like the threat of the Chinese, you know, Chinese yeah. invasion? Yeah. Where it's I like think... almost like something that China scholars talk about and media <laughs> people, but that normal people don't think about very much. I think there's a generation gap. I think people my generation, my parents' generation and you know, they're like their fifties, sixties, sixties, seventies. Um, you know, they grew up like people in the US hearing about the imminent nuclear weapon nuclear war that's gonna happen and um we have to protect democracy and you know, fight on the good side and something bad is going to happen. I think people like our age and younger are just kind of very cynical about it and don't think it'll actually mm-hmm. happen. Um, and then there's like this, when, but the only people who write about this stuff seriously are security people. And I think we all know anyone who's actually does security stuff for a living, they're like, it's like a cult. You just kind of enter this world of being told that there are these serious military threats all the time. So you just kind of believe it after a while. Mm. And um, yeah, and that's why you went into it because you believe they existed. If yeah. you didn't believe they existed, you wouldn't go into security, yeah. you know. So it's like hard, being it, like, yeah, the Santa Claus, or I don't know, it's like being like a unicorn rider or something. Like that. <laughs> well, I don't know, I don't I think mean, I'm gonna sign reasons. up for the unicorn riding classes. <laughs> go ahead, Tammy. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, now my mind is elsewhere. Um, I do think that there are riding reasons. a unicorn across, <laughs> I know, like, across unicorn the Mongolian steppe, surrounded by by young Mongolian children riding horses. You're riding a unicorn. Yeah, like, <laughs> that would be amazing. That All would right. be way anyway, better than what I usually write. <laughs> anyway, um, but I think like the reason why a lot of this stuff is coming out right now because there's been a raft of articles about this over the past couple of weeks. I mean, is obviously because of like our continuing just craziness yeah. with China as the U.S., but also I think. It is significant that after decades of not crossing over like the straight line, you know, like China has been inching closer in military exercises towards Taiwan. And obviously with everything going on in Hong Kong, like I think Taiwanese people probably do have more of an anxiety about it than usual. And I mean, now I, I take it that like military service for young men is like four months, like it's pretty short and, you know, they've been living in peacetime for many decades. But I think also like in the back of Taiwanese young people's minds about, oh, yeah, Taiwan or like China wouldn't actually mess with us is the idea of and if they do, the U.S. will be here. You know, and I think that to me is like an interesting tension. I'd be curious to hear what you guys think about, because I think it's the same for Koreans, like Koreans will and even Koreans on the left will talk a good game about like, why are we a neo-colony? Like, why do we have 30,000 American troops here? We're sick of this. And yet they don't really want them to go, you know, because there is a fear about Chinese and North Korean encroachment, you know, and that like the war games mentality, of course, like in day to day life, no one's kind of playing out those terms. But there's something kind of creeping in the consciousness that like is happy with this abnormal arrangement of the U.S. providing that much security for, you know, it's like allies in in East Asia. So I think it's incredibly uncomfortable. 
Yeah. And they grew up with it, right? So you have like a type of Stockholm Syndrome type of thing. Definitely. How else are they going to watch Seinfeld except on American (laughs) Force AFKN, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm serious, right? Like we're part of the cultural uh, growing up of of uh of of korean people i think is uh, part of it is sort of dealing with the military force and understanding how to think about the military there yeah and i don't think that any of them thought growing up that it was ever going to not be there you know and so it is quite a leap to think about well what if it wasn't there and it's not quite the same as i think here in the i don't want to like make some dumb cross-cultural argument but you know here it's very hard to imagine stuff like prison abolition for example right I imagine that it's probably similarly difficult to imagine Korea without any sort of American forces there, right? Yeah. It hasn't been true in either of our parents' lifetime, right. right? I don't know how old your parents are, but my parents, you know, they're born into the war, so there are American troops there. Yeah. Korea has its own military, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's everyone the thing. Has but, like, but they rely upon the backing of the U.S. Exactly. Well, and also the mili- the there we have a colonial and I think Taiwan actually has a very similar agreement with the U.S. that is essentially like a colonial agreement in which the U.S. kind of has to approve certain like arms acquisition. Um, and the yeah, right. defense terms are like pretty messed up, like they're very imbalanced, you know, and I think like so like my guess is like so for Taiwanese and like Japanese and Filipinos and Koreans, like they don't want the U.S. military to be as in their face, like in town as it was like in the 50s, right? But they also mm-hmm. don't really want them to go, and I. Yeah. It sucks. Like I. Yeah. <laughs> this is Jason. Or, it sucks. Like. <laughs> you know? We all get an it sucks. Exactly. Yeah. Or coming up. Yeah. Coming up next. Or just like as you know, as diaspora living in the U.S., I think we're like very comfortable criticizing U.S. empire. Totally. Right? But what exactly. if it comes to like our families in Korea or Taiwan? And it gets real, right? If if we feel like you know pulling back in U.S. empire there means exposing people we actually know and and live with and love and all that to some potential military threats. So yeah, mm-hmm. I think about that myself. And you know, is the analogy like you know I'm, I'm generally anti-intervention, but like is the analogy right. like between like Middle East and East Asia the same? You know, it's like I don't know. I'd have to like think about it more. But for, I, I completely admit it for self-serving reasons. For now, I'm happy with the status quo. Like I want, really, I like going, you are. I like going to Taiwan and just like having it feel safe and like mm. being very Americanized. I think Taiwan probably feels a little <laughs> bit more independent than South Korea. I don't know why. Maybe because the border <laughs> DMZ is right there. Um, <laughs> yeah. Like I don't really feel like U.S. military life is that big a deal. At least in like Taipei or or you know the the biggest cities where people live. Yeah. Um, is it is that changing, Tammy? I don't know. I only know this from personal experience on my trips to Korea and seeing the decline of the you know of the military presence visually, right? Like yeah. whereas before Intel, you had all these I'm... army surplus stores and shit like that, and now you have like a coffee shop that will make you a latte, um, <laughs> like with an Instagram handle. <laughs> right, <laughs> like that's but that that's that that has happened right before you would go and you would see like a bunch of like places selling football jerseys and stuff I, this was very like top of mind for me for some reason but you know when i was a kid you would go around the army base and you could buy like knockoff 
football jerseys and basketball jerseys that had the name spelled wrong and i found this to be so hilarious <laughs> and i bought a whole bunch of these english uh you know t-shirts and jerseys and would bring them to school and wear them around uh, those are all gone now you know or i don't know if they're all gone but it's much harder they're less prevalent you know is the, is the military less of a presence there than it was now it's consolidated in Camp Humphreys and they've, so they've pulled away from the North yeah. Korean border, right? And so like in Pyeongtaek, which is the main town that borders that, it still has a kind of old school camp town feel, to be honest. And that's okay. true um, near some of the smaller bases as well. I think like in Taiwan, there's probably, I mean, there's, there's fewer, there's fewer interactions with U.S. military even than Korea. But yeah, certainly like Korea is rich, you know, and so some of that power imbalance at least like superficially on a day-to-day level has been washed away. But the national dependence, I think, is still there. And I mean, it's sad to me because if you look at like the military spending of South Korea and Taiwan, it's actually huge, right? Like Taiwan has a very significant military for a nation its size. And yet like you have to like set it next to China and then it looks like minuscule, you know? But it's absurd that we have to do this, you know? Yeah, I feel like the strategy is like it's as far as just like kind of reading around. I feel like the strategy isn't so much to win the war <laughs> against China, is it? Right. It's to make it like so bloody that China doesn't want to do it. Ugh, right. God. And it would be like so terrible. terrible. But yeah. by no means would like the United States plus Taiwan actually like succeed, right? Like how could they? Right. But the, like there's, I remember like you know in debate you would you had these like debate cards from like the 80s talking about what would happen if China's <laughs> amphibious forces crossed into <laughs> Bradley <laughs> Island's arguments. <laughs> Bradley Island's cards. Yeah, no, not Bradley, but it was like no, like there were all these debate scenarios yeah. of like yeah. war in Taiwan equals global nuclear war. You know, like yeah, that kind yeah. Of thing. Oh, wow. um, which is like what security planners have been thinking about. Yeah, he's making the face she does every time we talk about. <laughs> 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 no, I go to my unicorn place now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Whoever made that bingo <laughs> totally. Flying across the mountainside on my unicorn (laughs) while these two fucking nerds talk about some debate round from 1998 where they're reading Charles Crownhammer cards and arguing about like the important, you know, the the expanding executive, you know, (laughs) passing a poultry processing plant build. And if you don't stop it, then Salmonella will wipe out half of the world. Like, yeah, no, it's it's better to be in your unicorn place than that. That was a diss ad I wrote. Oh, stupid. Um, All right. Well, is there anything else you guys want to talk about? Um, You know, I do think the one last thing that I think we can discuss in terms of the second topic that we talked about, which is, I don't know, I think that's a, it's an ongoing conversation and I don't want it to sound too didactic about it, but I, I, I guess it's like, I don't, you know, I, I've found myself thinking about what happens after Trump, right? Where mm-hmm. these a lot of these arguments can't just be waved away by saying, well, that's associated with Trump, right? Like, well, oh, you're making the argument that Trump supporters make. And I hope that maybe at that point, some of this stuff will be de- kind of dislodged because it won't be so like toxically polarized right. and that maybe we can talk about these things a little bit differently. But I don't know, right now it still drives me crazy to, you know, constantly hear these sort of like whatabouts and it's like, I don't know, all these people are dying and it's like, you know, it's bad and their politics are yeah. terrible, but like, I don't know, like who really cares if they're racist, you know, is that like a terrible thing to say? Like, I don't really care if, I, I find myself finding it harder and harder to care if people have racism in their hearts or not. I just assume they do. <laughs> 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 right. 
It's like levels of racism, like Mike Davis said, I think, right? He was like, he's like, most of my friends from my childhood are like racist, but they're not like racist. (laughs) He's like, I I cut them up when they're like racist, you know? I feel like that. I feel like that. I'm like, are you a member of a clan? The clan? Okay. All right. We can find common cause, like join my labor party, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm with you, but I think we're in the minority, Tammy. Like, I think that, uh, I don't know. I I just I find it just weird, and um, it feels a lot like uh, you know, um, like people are trying to figure out ways to figure out to discount all of this, right? And I do think that like Asians are in this strange position because they can't quite come up with their own whatabouts, yeah. you know. So then they do the other people's whatabouts. <laughs> 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 and so at that point they just become white right like isn't yeah. that the process of becoming white like if mm. we're doing a whiteness studies thing it's uh, like when I you see. can't do your own what about right. and so then you do other people's what about and right. you become white yeah so congratulations to all asians we're now white and uh <laughs> and- we don't even have our own what about <laughs> We don't have our own whatabouts. The whatabouts are so lame. You know, it's like, what about the uh, Chinese Exclusion Act? And everyone's like, the what now? (laughs) What was that? But we do have a Federalist Society judge. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and like, uh, what about like the discrimination of Asians at elite colleges? There, it's like, yeah, that's a good thing. We like that, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, um, well, what about Vincent Chin? And everyone's, who's Vincent Chin? You know, is, what, is he like a, you know, is he like a CNBC anchor? Like, I don't know who Vincent Chin is. Like, um, <laughs> is he a relief pitcher? <laughs> um, yeah, I don't. I don't know. We don't have our own what about. So maybe if we did, I would feel more invested in this stuff. But um, <laughs> I think in the end, it's sort of like, well, it's not just white people who don't feel, you know, if we use the Barbara Fields idea that you, you I think it's going to be increasingly immigrants who are obviously an increasing number of the people in this country, right? If your politics also excludes them, then you've lost, you've just yeah. lost. And yeah. so hopefully that this stuff can be expanded in some sort of meaningful way that still you know keeps at its core the idea that like the police should not fucking be racist and kill black people and that you know that that's like a untenable thing that should be protested every time it happens um all right uh are we done yeah okay well thank you for listening to our show uh we do this every monday night and we put it out on tuesday and uh (laughs) of our you can get in touch with us at ttsg pod on twitter or time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com we are going to keep reading your listener emails like every other week i would say and we do like them we get much more than we ever expected you would say that's true right yeah yeah Yeah, we got a lot of them um and we read and discuss all of them and we try and pick what ones we read on the air. But if we haven't gotten back to you, it's not because of lack of uh, interest in what you're saying. It's literally because like we're all Andy and Tamer at the beginning of the semester. I just finished my book today and sent it in. So I'm going to have a whole lot of time to respond to the listener emails from here on out. If you notice that our show had much more of structure today, it's because I had more time <laughs> to put in a bunch of notes. 
that I felt totally compelled to read through. I'm actually not sure if it was a good idea or not. In fact, in my head, as I was doing it, I was like, there's too much structure here. Why am I talking so much, you know? But, you know, that was why. So maybe I just need to, like, do something else, like gamble compulsively on, on my phone or something like that to, like, take up more of my brain. But, um, yeah. You can get, you should get in touch with us. Please sign up for our newsletter at, at goodbye.substack.com. Um, and yeah, happy, uh, happy Indigenous Peoples Day. Okay, all right, bye.